11th, November 1981. In this episode, a summary of my trip to Kansas Fest, where a small number of Atari users invade the annual Apple II convention. Also, a summary of the Retro Challenge and my entry into it. Talk a little bit about a couple new Atari podcasts that are coming up. I have two contributors this time for magazine coverage, and introduce two new magazines to the coverage. Computer Gaming World, a US magazine that covers home computer games, and my first magazine from the UK, Computer and Video Games, which covers both home computers and arcade games. The game review this time is Reverse I2, an APX game based on the board game Othello. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 15. back to another Player Missile Podcast. I am back from Kansas Fest. Kansas Fest is an Apple II convention, and it was raided by a bunch of Atari fans. So I was there. Wade from Inverse Tasky was there. Kevin from Antic was there. There were a couple other Atari users, for sure. Michael Sternberg was there. He had an 800XL that we borrowed for our uh, Atari talk. That's kind of a prop. And um, Kevin, Quinn Dunkey, Carrington Vanston, they found a an article with that had the source code for a game both on the Apple Basic and Atari Basic, and they typed them both in using Michael's 800XL and compared it to an Apple II and the Atari One. So yay! There are some Commodore and Coco people there. Mike Whalen was there, Commodore guy. John Linville was there from the Coco Crew podcast. So it wasn't all Apple people. It was a it was a great sort of retro convention and a lot of 6502 knowledge. I would definitely go again. I had a good time, and I recorded a bit from Kansas Fest too. I, <laughs> I meant to do more, but I only recorded actually one day. And then uh, the next day was the presentation that I gave along with Kevin and Wade. Um, so anyway, here's a little snippet that I recorded at Kansas Fest. So it's here the first day of Kansas Fest. I got in yesterday and uh, flew in. And they organize a great service where they combine car shares. So people flying in who are renting a car or whatever will pick up people who don't have a car. So it's a lot of work coordinating that. But got here and checked in and we're at Rockhurst University, which is a a small university here in Kansas City. So you check in and you go to, they have dorm rooms and they set up with like a quiet side and a loud side. So I'm here on the quiet side because I do like my snoozing. So Scott checked in and Tuesdays they don't have a dinner. The cafeteria plan's not set up so we all went out to dinner. And afterwards Ken Gagney and I stopped by um, the Up Down, which is a barcade. They had a pretty good selection. Well, they had probably 15 classic games maybe and then 15 or so games that were maybe in late 80s, you know, fighting games and stuff that I had. I don't, yeah, I'm not, that's not, not my style of arcade game. But they, uh, I kept looking around and looking around and, and I, they had Tron, so I played that and it ate one of my tokens, but then on the next token I set the high score on the game. I got 49,000 on Tron, which is the best I've done in a long time. So I felt, I, <laughs> I wasn't too sad about it, it chomping an extra quarter. But that was it for um, Tuesday, really, and then this morning, Wednesday morning, they had the uh, cafeteria open for breakfast, so got to check that out. Apparently it's been newly remodeled and m- improved from last year, and it was nice on the second floor of a, it must be like the student union kind of building, and so it's got a nice view of the, I guess, west side of campus, overlooking kind of a exercise, athletic fields and stuff. The first session wasn't going to be till one uh, thirty. that's the keynote speaker, Rebecca Heineman. So in the lead up to that, they had uh, a, a cookout, 
had some burgers and stuff. And then they had the, um, what they call the garage sale, where people bring some Apple II stuff they're trying to get rid of. And I wasn't around for the frenzy. I didn't see it happen, but there was you know, stacks and stacks of stuff. There was a pile of, like, I don't know, four Apple IIEs. I guess it's right next to a stack of another four Apple IIEs, so like eight Apple IIEs altogether. Some of them in pretty good repair, and some of them were, looked like they dug them out from a, I don't know, like an anthill or something. It was just covered with dirt and brown. looked terrible. But I went back after the swap meet had begun, and they were gone, so all that stuff was gone. A whole bunch of books, software, magazines, those little um, you know plastic cases, the file folder type things for the floppy disks. Had any number of like Apple II power supplies, a bunch of disk drives, keyboards, monitors, and they even had a special table full of uh, Tandy color computer stuff. Three or four color computers and cartridges and all sorts of stuff. And So when I went back, virtually everything was gone. There's some books and a lot of software was still there. So I'll just kind of milled around for a while. I was working on my uh, presentation. I'm giving a talk here on the Apple from the Atari perspective. So Wade from Inverstasky, Kevin from Antic, and I are here, and we thought we'd do this talk, and I ended up just kind of doing the present, you know, the bulk of the writing for the presentation, so I figured, well, I'll just do it since I don't want to you know, force them to stand up and do stuff, <laughs> do a presentation that I wrote. So I'll do that, and then we're going to have a little question and answer session that we'll all be a part of. So hopefully that'll go well. So anyway, after kind of working on that for a while, it was time for the keynote speaker, who was Rebecca Heinemann, so we all went down, and she gave a great talk. It was a, a very personal talk. She took us through her whole history and shared some painful memories from her past, and how she grew up with abusive parents, and you know how that shaped her and shaped her you know, confidence in her own abilities. And there were certainly parts that were hard to listen to because you don't want to see anybody suffer like that. But I thank her for sharing because it was an important story and stories like that do need to be told. But she did share some happier memories and starting with uh, how she got into computers and Apple II specifically. And interestingly, she shared some bunch of hacking stories about how she hacked into uh, Atari 2600 cartridges using um, electronics that she built herself. She was able to copy 2600 cartridges and in fact, she was the winner of the National uh, Space Invaders contest in 1980. And I was talking to Wade and Kevin afterwards. I just thought it was kind of funny that she won the Atari Space Invaders contest using a hacked copy of the Space Invaders cartridge. She had borrowed the cartridge from a friend and learned how to create hardware, custom hardware, to pull the ROM images off onto her Apple II. And then more hardware than to allow a 2600 to boot a cartridge off the Apple II. So a really cool hacking story. Shared a bunch of other hacking stories like that. And then talked about her time developing games for the 2GS and toolkits and stuff. Shared that she was going to go through and she'd kept a lot of the source code and re- and sort of archived a lot of the source code that the companies had forgotten about. And so now she's going to go back and try to release as much of that source code on GitHub as she can legally do so I got a big round of applause from the all from all the people in attendance. So that'd be cool to see some. But most of it was GS Apple II GS stuff, and then she went on to you know develop on other platforms and stuff. But it seemed like had a, a lot of knowledge of the six five eight sixteen, which is the Apple II GS and the Super Nintendo CPU. It seemed like that was really her the processor that she loves the best.
Interestingly, when she was talking about the Space Invaders contest, she was unsure as to how you know good she was going to do, and they listed the prizes and stuff. And she said second place was an Atari 800 computer, and she was like, oh, if I could just get second place. And as it turned out, you know, they announced the runners-up, you know, the fifth place, fourth place, third place. And second place wasn't her, and she said, <laughs> she's like, dang it, I'm not going to get the Atari 800, without realizing that she actually had and then won the whole thing. So it was a really fun keynote speech, and, uh, you know, with serious stuff as well, but it was a, she gave a very good talk, and uh, Jason Scott was there from the Internet Archive, and I think he is, I, thought, I saw he already posted audio, and I think he was working on posting video as well. So maybe by the time you hear this, there will be video of that keynote. And then after that, there were some, there was an iOS talk, and an Xcode talk, and a talk on low-res graphics, and then bedtime for me, so I think I'm going to, get ready for my talk. My uh, presentation we're giving is tomorrow night, Thursday night. So I will report back after that and let you know how it went. Yeah, the talk went pretty well. I was super nervous, man. It was, uh, (laughs) you know, I've been through Toastmasters training and all that stuff. And so I've given speeches before, but it's just, I'm out of practice. And I was was nervous. It was well attended. You know, uh, the talk was about Atari's and how to relate it to the Apple II, how it was similar, different. Um, And then it sort sort of you know, be something that would be acceptable to an Apple audience. I was trying to relate how uh, the Apple won the market, you know, how it defeated the Atari and how Atari's many mistakes in marketing the machine, along with, you know, some design decisions and stuff, really kind of relegated it to second or third place even uh, behind the Apple and the C64. But I certainly tried to talk up all the, the technical abilities of the, of the Atari Jason Scott, I think, also has, has archived my talk, so whenever I get a link to that, I'll share that on the podcast. But yeah, it was, it was pretty well received, I think, for talking about a bunch of Atari stuff to a, a bunch of Apple people. Yeah, Quinn Ducky didn't say boo Atari once to me while I was up there, so I appreciate that. Nobody threw any tomatoes, so... No, it was a great crowd. I mean, they're a really respectful audience. And um, there was about, what, 75 people there? I think they said it was the largest Kansas Fest in, shoot, I can't remember, many years. 10, 15 years, I can't remember the exact number. So much that uh, if you listen to the RCR episode number 105, we got a bunch of podcasters together and talked about, you know, a bunch of first-timers as well. We just talked about how we enjoyed the show and what we thought about it. And then they brought up the issue of like, well, what happens if this keeps growing? If the, if the event keeps getting bigger and bigger, how are they going to deal with that influx of new people? Which is a great problem to have, really. I think in the recent years it had got down, the attendance had got down into the 20s and 30s, and it's been climbing back up in the last 10 years. There's even a suggestion is like, well, what if they were to open it up to a bigger retro audience, like sort of actually have topics, invite speakers for Atari topics, you know, Atari technical topics, uh, C64 topics, Coco topics. Would they even have a separate track for, you know, an Apple track and a non-Apple track or something like that? I like this conference in that it, there was only the single track, so you didn't have to choose between presentations. Going to other conferences, there's always the the you know, the hard choice to make is like, oh, I want to see both of these, but they happen to be at the same time. And that was one thing I definitely liked about this was not having to have to make that hard choice of which one to miss. And it was a fairly technical conference. You know, there are a lot of you know deep dives into the internals of, say, the disk drives or the mouse. There was a, a great talk about by Charles Mangan on about uh, <laughs> the various different types of mice that were available for the Apple hardware. Mark Pilgrim, the author of, um, of Dive into Python and other books, gave a talk about copy protection on the Apple II. And I don't know, not, Apple II disk drives are really, really weird compared to Atari drives. Essentially, they're on disk, they're just a big bit stream, and it's all software 
that decides where the sector is and where the sector boundaries and track boundaries are. Uh, the, the sector boundaries, you know, it's just a, a bitstream and there's a, a, there's markers that you look for and track boundaries. The motor can just step on even to quarter tracks, half tracks, very, very different. Everything is under the control of the Apple, the 6502 to the extent that the CPU is, has to run at a, at a particular speed. And so on, you know, accelerated Apple twos, when they have a disk drive read, they actually have to step down back to one megahertz in order to read the disk drive properly. You know, the Atari, because of the SIO bus and because you've got to talk to a controller on the 65 or on the 6502 on the disk drive itself, you just get back packets of sectors. And so it's very, the copy protection schemes are just really, really intricate. And there was a, yeah, a great technical talk. Most of it went over my head, although, I, you know, I could sort of see the, the glimpses of it, but, uh, yeah, a bunch of bunch of great talks. If you like technical topics on the Apple, certainly you should go. And I think, you know, certainly I'm going to try to go back to Kansas Fest. I think I bet I'll see Kevin and Wade there again. And you as an Atari listener, yeah, maybe we can raid the uh, Kansas Fest again and have a, a bigger Atari presence. And maybe we will force them to have that Atari track where we can really get into in-depth Atari stuff. You know, I didn't feel like I could talk a whole, you know, super in-depth on, you know, t- super technical topics on the Atari because the you know, the audience wasn't there. You know, it still is an Apple II conference. But have, if we had enough Atari users, we could get into something. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear a talk about Atari copy protection or, you know, a, a real in-depth game design review of some Atari game, you know, that, that somebody wrote and could present to us as Atari, as the Atari audience. Maybe we can force them to make this, <laughs> make a, an Atari branch of Kansas Fest. So anyway, a great time. You know, it was, a, it was definitely a summer camp aspect to it. You know, you stayed in the dorms and you ate with everybody and you really, it wasn't like a conference in that everybody scattered after presentations. It's like you were, you were around and stuff was happening all the time. One of the cool things was this contest they have called Hackfest, where it, you, it's, the goal is to make something on the Apple II, some piece of software or I suppose hardware, but the rules are that you can't start it until you get to Kansas Fest. So over the, the four days or five days, whatever, you've got to come up and make this and then they have the final judging on the Saturday. So that's one thing I would, I wish I would have tried to do, but I was, <laughs> I was working on the presentation and I kept changing stuff and adding stuff. And as I saw some presentations, I thought of more things to add. And there's my phone going off. Sorry about that. I will, I leave, I'll leave that in though, just <laughs> again, to prove that I have an Atari 8-bit connection here. Give you bonus points if you recognize that song. And incidentally, I have a bunch of uh, 8-bit ringtones up on my website. So there's a put a link in the show notes to direct to that. But the downloads page has a whole bunch of ringtones that I've pulled out of games and stuff. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Hackfest. So yeah, there's a bunch of bunch of cool stuff that people did. Amazing stuff, really. Carrington advanced in one for this really cool like tic-tac-toe game where each square in the tic-tac-toe board was also a tic-tac-toe game. He wrote it in CC65 in uh, Apple low-res graphics. Everybody was super impressed with Martin Hay, who wrote an Apple III assembler and disassembler just during Hackfest. The Apple III doesn't have a monitor, so I think he ported uh, something similar to the Apple II monitor over to the Apple III. Kevin Savitz had a couple entries, too. He had a he had an autoplayer for the um, one of the game entries. They have a game contest there where you, you know, they get a, have a, like a bracketed tournament. And so he made an autoplayer for one of the games that was there. See, I'll put a link in the show notes to all the Hackfest stuff. There's some that have the source code available that you can look at if you have an Apple II. Yeah, and when I get links to the um, speeches and stuff that were, the talks and stuff that were given, I will include them in the show notes or on the website or something. But you can go to kansasfest.org and they have all the stuff listed there. So again, highly recommended. Had a really good time. I enjoyed meeting Kevin and Wade and just talking Atari stuff, you know, in our little uh, Atari corner. 
And certainly it was fun to hang out with all the all our fellow retro enthusiasts. And, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff in common between the Apple II and the Atari. And I kind of st- try to stress that in the in my talk, you know, showing the memory map and how much of it was was similar. But yeah, it was just fun to hang out with a lot of people that have the same sort of idea of fun, you know, fun being programming these old machines or playing old games. So yeah, highly recommended. I hope to see some more Atari people there next year. I hope to go next year. Um, and, you know, it was also fun to meet all the podcasters. That we had a big post- podcaster roundup. Yeah, I met Paul Hagstrom from Drop Three Inches and Retro Computing Roundtable. And I had talked to Paul previously, I think episode five of the Sabotage episode. He was kind enough to come on the show and we talked Apple II stuff and kind of gave me a, a rundown of the Apple II graphics hardware. So it was nice to meet him. Michael Mulhern, Carrington Advanced, and Stephen Weirich from the Retro Computing Roundtable were there as well. And then Ken Gagne, who has a bunch of podcasts and was formerly on the Retro Computing Roundtable, but now does Polygamer and Indie Cider. Quinn Ducky from Open Apple, whose favorite thing to say is yay, Atari. So she said that a lot during the Kansas Fest. Yeah, I'll have to say that. Mike Whalen was there from, he does the Electric Dreams podcast. John Linville from the Coco Crew. He also gave a talk on the Coco. And John Leake from the Retro Mac cast. So it was a big, what's that? 12 podcaster summit all kind of gathered around a single microphone. So yeah, that was fun. Uh, that's Retro Computing Roundtable episode number 105. And I have to say, I had a I had a great time shouting the final retro compute that they do at the end of their episode. But sadly, it all had to come to an end, so I had to fly back Saturday, and um, I had intended to go to California Extreme, which is an arcade show here in the Bay Area, San Jose, or I guess Santa Clara. But I just had a bunch of family stuff, and so I didn't get to go. But there's a a bunch of pictures on the um, Twitter feed of uh, California Extreme, and I think on the webpage now, too. So I'll include some links in the show notes about California Extreme. Yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed I couldn't go, but... You know, maybe next year they won't overlap. The the dates for Kansas Fest have already been announced for 2016. It's July 19th to the 24th, uh, again, at Rockhurst University. So I guess that's about it for Kansas Fest summary this time. Um, I did want to mention, though, that Kevin sat down with Rebecca Heinemann and did a little interview right there at Kansas Fest, and that's up on the Antic interview uh, number 64. So I'll have a link for that in the show notes. And it's interesting. It's an interesting talk. So... Rebecca brings up a bunch of stuff about the Atari market in particular and how piracy hurt it. And she's talking about the A10 disk drive that was hard to protect stuff in comparison to the Apple disk drive. I guess because the Apple had so much low-level control. And, you know, thinking about Mark Pilgrim's talk about the copy protection scheme, there were a lot of ways that you could sort of mess with the bitstream that you can't with the Atari. Because, you know, the Atari, you're just talking to another controller that's sending back just packets of of, uh, sector data. And she also raised a point that I hadn't really thought about before, but because the Atari disk drives were, you know, small size in comparison, you know, they were, what, 90K, 128-byte sectors, that it would require multiple disks to ship some of these larger games, whereas on, like, an Apple or C64, you could ship it on a single disk. And she was saying that the, the sort of the failure rate was high enough where if, if one disk fails out of, a like, say, a four-disk game, it would cause a return where that might only be a two-disk game on another platform, so the economics, she said, were harder to justify. Not only, and the, had some numbers that she remembered about selling, say, 3,000 Atari copies and, you know, 10 times that number on the Apple. So she brought up the point that Atari wasn't necessarily honest about the number of machines that they sold. But getting back to the disk drives, I don't know, I had a much different experience than she did. I found that I couldn't copy anything with the 810. Well, you know, I had a tractor story, but it's the same thing. You know, the, the SIO connection to the disk drive didn't allow you to do anything except for read sectors or write them. You didn't have any kind of low-level control like you did on the Apple. 
Whereas on Apple, to copy a protected thing was mostly figuring out the bitstream, and then the disk drive itself could write it because you had full control over the bits you were you were writing out to the disk. On the Atari, you could only write a sector. So she must have been into the Atari market much earlier than I was because by the time I got there, the you know you couldn't copy anything without a happy drive modification or something. And she also had different experiences on the Atari ST than I did. She characterizes it as a pretty buggy and crashy OS. And um, I got mine in 87, and I didn't think it was that crashy. I didn't have that same sort of issue with it. So I guess I was on TOS, was it on 1.04? So maybe they fixed a lot of stuff that, you know, and then in the couple of years after they released it, then when she had used it. She also said that it was recommended from Atari that if your machine crashed a lot, just to pick it up, pick the machine up and drop it, which I, I don't remember that either. I, that was sort of the kind of the, the Apple III sort of theme that everybody has in their heads. So maybe I had some better hardware when my ST came out than the, when she must, maybe she used some early stuff or something. But anyway, it is an interesting interview to listen to, even if she's <laughs> not very complimentary of the Atari marketing people and the Tremels particularly. And hopefully you're keeping up with all the antique interviews. They're doing a lot of great stuff. You know, Rebecca makes the point in, at the end of her interview, like had the Atari been designed with sort of a bus interface in mind that they could have taken over the whole market because the hardware was so good. And that relates to an interview that uh, Randy did on the um, Antic interviews. He talked to Steve Mayer, who when Randy asked him, you know, what they could have done differently or, or something, you know, to um, change the fortunes of Atari, he mentioned that what if Atari had come out with two systems, you know, sort of the, the low end 400, but designed for games, you know, no keyboard or with a, you know, keyboard attachment and a higher end version that had slots like the Apple II market them differently. So they're compatible with the same software, but you get the one, the low end machine that's just for games and the higher end machine marketed to business. So he didn't have to deal with the FCC, but was totally expandable. And yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, it doesn't do any good to think about that stuff now, but it, it kind of is funny. You know, maybe some parallel universe that Atari is the dominant player, even still, yeah. Oh, the things we could change if we could go back in time, get the IBM to choose a 68,000. Holy cow. Would have spared us all from 8086 assembly, segmented memory architectures and stuff, but uh, that's all a rant for another time. All right, let's do a little feedback. As I mentioned briefly in the intro to the Game Drive episode last time, I got a bunch of feedback from people who told me that the uh, 8-bit missile command does in fact support the trackball. Herb Saltiger, Perry Twenty, Adam Trionfo. Yep, I definitely (laughs) didn't get that i missed that easter egg so it does indeed so if you press Control t it'll uh, allow you to use the trackball on the uh, 8-bit cartridge for missile command and sorry i guess it's adam trionfo on antic episode number 24 that he, he uh, also had feedback to them and um, sorry adam messed up your name there but adam also said that and i can't remember if i included this that uh, the xe game system had missile command built in it was the built-in game and stay tuned there's an xe game system podcast coming up I know more than I'm allowed to say, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. So, yeah, stay tuned. And I'll, I will certainly let everybody know when I have more info that I can tell everybody about. Been sworn to secrecy. Friend of the show, Craig Abridzetsi, mentioned about the um, ATR 8000 with quad drives when I was talking about the um, quad density stuff not being on the Atari. And he mentioned that the Percom drive also had the ability to run standard floppy drives like TIAC or something as uh, as slave drives. And I also had a track trak track drive that had the ability to use that although i never i never i only had the single disk drive i never had another disk drive but that you could plug in using a ribbon cable to some standard uh floppy drive and get a second drive controller the track was also cool in that it had a centronics printer port on the back but unfortunately i still have that track but it's 
dead somewhere. It clicks and then it turns off. I don't know. Something's up with probably the power supply. Maybe it's just a capacitor problem. But if there was a Kansas Fest for Atari people, then I could bring it and someone might know how to fix it. So yeah, I'm still pushing for the Atari side of Kansas Fest. Let's invade Kansas Fest with Atari users. Jack Nutting from the Retro Computing Roundtable also said a little bit of feedback about Missile Command. And he said, interesting that the, and funny that I didn't think that the kids knew what Armageddon would mean. He said, I was 10 in 1981, and I'm pretty sure that I knew the word by then. And I also recall at the time that I considered the risk of nuclear war to not only be non-zero, but 100%. It seemed to me a foregone conclusion that it would happen for sure, and the only question was when. And yeah, I kind of agree. I I was definitely, like, I'd have even, you know, dreams of just riding my bike through a nuclear wasteland or something and, you know, trying to survive. So yeah, I definitely, it was a, it was a common fear, I think, back then. Friend of the show, Bill Lang, he sent uh, some emails, said, thanks for including Omnitrends Universe in your game draft. He said his top three was the Ultima series, the Enchanter series from Infocom, and this one. He said, my brother and I spent many hours playing Universe, and its depth and design were amazing on the 8-bit. He said, sadly, unlike my other favorites, I never finished Universe, mostly because of the excessive disc changes. And yeah, it was a four-disc thing, and had swap all the time. And new friend of the show, Adam Triunfo, having sent several email feedbacks in just between episode 13 and now, talked about the Flight Simulator episode. And he said he didn't, he didn't play a lot of Flight Sims, and so he wasn't sure how much he liked the episode, but he thought that, uh, that Chris's enthusiasm for the subject made it a, a must-listen-to episode. And he said, I love that a type-in game was reviewed. This carried a lot of credibility, and I wonder if any listeners remembered typing that one in and playing it. And uh, and he said, having Kennedy approach explained to me by a pilot was sheer brilliance, and I could see very clearly how a fan could fall in love with the control in that game. And then he he points out a a list to Moby Games where um, scenery discs were available for Flight Simulator 2. And because I think, I remember Chris and I talking about it, and we weren't sure, but yeah, there were. And so there's references to them, and on Atari Mania, there are some uh, links to some of the the discs as well. The actual disc images are, seem to be missing, but uh, there, there are links to the discs that were available, at least. If I ever do find links to the uh, disc images for the scenery discs, I'll include them in the show notes. And he said, please thank Chris for his excellent comments, and as ever, keep up the great work. So, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate that. And Chris and I are trying to schedule a time to sit down and do the second half of the flight simulator stuff, where we'll talk about military flight simulators. So that may be the next episode, if we can get it arranged in time. But yeah, stay tuned for that. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Adam also asked about um, Missile Command and that Rob Zadibble would build a custom version of the game for you if you made a like trackball with three buttons. And so, yeah, so this is for Atari employees at the time. So if, if you as an Atari employee would make this trackball with three buttons, he'd then make this custom game in the game. I, I guess I didn't explain it very well, but this game is a... It has three bases, so three distinct bases, just like the arcade game. So there's one on the left, center, and one on the right. And each of the three buttons then would control each individual base. So yeah, sorry for not making that more clear when I was talking about that in, that, in the Missile Command episode. And that friend of the show, Michael Portuizzi, sent me some more email about his um, his typing stuff that he did for Compute Superplot. So he gave me a list, a link to his GitHub that has the source code on there. So I include that in the show notes. And we're trying to schedule a time so I can have him on the podcast and we can talk about all this stuff. You know, the submission process to Compute and what it was like to write that. And um, yeah, so looking forward to that. And finally here, I um, Bill Kendrick on Twitter pointed me to a, a sort of aggregator of game-by-game style podcasts. It's, interestingly, gamebygamepodcast.com. So it includes Player Missile up there and, you know, all the, the usual suspects. You know, Ferg and the 2600, the 5200 Super Podcast, 7800, 
This is the forthcoming XE Game System podcast, and a new one that I wanted to mention, the Jaguar Game by Game podcast by Shinto, who has submitted a bunch of audio feedbacks to Ferg and the 5200 Super Podcast and stuff. And he always high quality stuff, and so he's making his own podcast about the Jaguar. So, yeah, I know nothing about the Jaguar, but that'll be fun to listen to. So that's at jaguar.gamebygamepodcast.com. Let's do some listener-written programs. Bill Kendrick is at it again. He is working on a port of Gemdrop, the game I reviewed in Episode 7, and we chatted about. This time, he's porting it from Action to CC65, and it plays just the same as far as I can tell. And yeah, so I looked through the source code. It's much easier for me to sort of look at C than it is Action. Although Action is not all that hard to read, but you know, I just don't understand some of the intricacies, whereas... You know, I, I, I know C, and so it's just kind of... So, I'm, you know, I'm also looking to see if I can use CC65 to write some stuff for the Atari. So, this will be nice to have a, f- you know, fully fleshed out example that I can refer to. So, I'll include a link to the sh- in the show notes to his CC65 version of Gemdrop. And not exactly a listener-written program, and I don't know if this person even listens to the podcast, but there's a website called the Digital Antiquarian, run by Jimmy Marr, who just a great website, and uh, there's a particular link it's an ongoing history of computer en- entertainment in chronological order. So it's this hugely detailed website. And this link I'll put in the show notes is called uh, An Ongoing History of Computer Entertainment in Chronological Order. So it's this, it's a blog, but it's just, it's, there's a bunch of entries about all sorts of different platforms, really detailed stuff. I think I've referenced it before in the podcast, but in particular, one I was looking at recently was a um, overview of, the, of Epics, the software company and hardware company later. I have the Epix 500XJ joystick, currently broken. And Epix was actually, actually the company that first developed the Lynx, but then Atari took over the marketing and selling of it. But anyway, super great website. Highly recommend to check it out. Let's do a teeny main cabinet update. My friend Neil, when he came to visit, helped me paint, so the cabinet is all painted. But that's the only other progress I've made. When I went to Kansas Fest... We made a couple trips out to, um, there's a couple barcades there. One was called, uh, the Tapcade and the other is the Updown. And I, I went, only went to the Updown because it was actually used tokens and the Tapcade, I think you paid like, I don't know, whatever, five bucks or whatever and to get free play. But I just didn't have enough time to really feel like I could play that much. So I just, we just went to the Updown a couple times and Wade and I went there once and he schooled me on Donkey Kong Jr. I tried to return the favor on Tron, but uh, it was fun. They had, they had a sit down. Spy Hunter that just just ate my token, so I was really kind of ticked off about that. I was looking forward to playing Spy Hunter, but anyway, what was the point of this? Oh yeah, so looking at the at the panels, the control panels, the the, um, the joysticks and stuff were much sort of closer to the front of the cabinet than I thought. I'd kind of been making these sort of deep panels, maybe uh, what were they, eight inches deep or something, and tried to center the joystick in there, and that was kind of interfering with the design of the the bezel and how to mount the monitor, I, I was kind of thinking I might have to have a sort of a cutout behind it, because I also want to have a row that contains all the Atari controls, you know, like a s- start-select option, and, you know, one player, two player, stuff like that. And then I want to have these removable panels to change out the joysticks to a trackball or whatever. But looking at all these arc- arcade games, the joysticks are actually pretty close to the front, so I may not, after having played them like that, I may not have to have as much depth to the control panel as I was thinking. So I mean, that was a good experience. It's always good to check out real hardware. And yeah, I hope to have the cabinet done before my kids go to college. So yeah. Let's talk a little tech. 
I have been working with Kevin Savitz on an internet archive project where that little Python program that I mentioned several episodes ago, ATR copy, where I can split ATR files into um, individual tech, you know, pull, pull out the files from an ATR image and put them right in, on your local file system. So we're modifying that in order to kind of read the directory listings of ATR images on the Atar- on the Internet Archive and then putting out sort of summary pages of what's on all these ATR images. Because they've just got thousands and thousands of Atari disk images. So being able, to be, being able to pull out the disk directory and then any sort of text files and put a summary of the text contents on the web page so you can see what they are before you download the ATR image. So that's a fun project I'm working on with him. Another project I found in my stack of old floppy disks was a source code to a game that I had worked on when I was a kid. It was kind of a sabotage clone. I called it Air Defense. Well, I went through a bunch of different names. And if you, <laughs> I've got the source. I cleaned it all up and put it in a, a GitHub, uh, put it in a Git repository over on GitHub. And I'll have a link in the show notes. And I put all the versions. I'd say the, the versions were kind of like, it was game one, game two, game three. You know, that was my source code control. But I, I stacked all those on top of each other and, and stuck it in a single Git history. So you can go back and see all the history of the, the code as it changes. And I'm missing a couple versions and, and a couple of the later ones don't even work at all. I don't know what I was intending because uh, my commenting was poor. And when I want to say poor, I mean non-existent. I wrote this whole assembly language game with like zero comments, like literally no comments. The only comments are like the labels that you did JSR to or something. Not my finest teaching tool for programming, but it's, uh, the, it's interesting. The game, it game, the plays, it, you have your sort of central base and you shoot airplanes and stuff as they fly over and then they drop little boxes with parachutes and you can shoot the parachutes off like you can in sabotage. And then the boxes just pile up on the ground. That's kind of as far as I got. I was going to make them like little tanks, I think, and kind of roll over and shoot your, um, your base. But it's kind of neat to, to find this little bit of history, you know, my own programming history and how, you know, how I really had learned a lot about the Atari to do all this. There's a subroutine that was published in Analog Magazine. I don't know if you remember this. It's called Graphic Violence. It was used in games in analog like Planetary Defense. You know, it makes this little explosion on screen that it kind of eats away whatever graphics are behind it. So I had hacked this and used it in this game. Graphic Violence runs in, in graphics mode 7, but the game I wrote was in 7+, plus. you know, so Antic 14. So I had to hack it to to put to double the, the vertical resolution on when you plot it on, on uh, Antic mode 14. So I had a little write-up on it on, on the website if you're interested, and uh, you can check out some half-finished game in machine language. So another project I attempted to do was referenced in the, the RCR podcast is they've talked about this for a while. This is the first time I've tried it is the retro challenge. So I entered the retro challenge and my goal was to try to use it as impetus to fix the Star Raiders stuff that I've been working on. So yeah, my goal in Star Raiders was try to, to speed up the explosions because when the explosions happen, it, everything kind of grinds down to the frame rate goes way down. So I was going to try to replace the division algorithm. And I thought the retro challenge timing was uh, the whole month of July. It's like, oh, great. I'll, you know, well, in July, I'll be at Kansas Fest. You know, I can talk to some folks at Kansas Fest and see how they, I might improve the division algorithm. And indeed, when I was there, I talked to Martin Hay, who's a, who's one of the co-authors of Lawless Legends, which is a sort of an old-style RPG mixed with new-style sort of 3D elements wandering around the towns and stuff. Where they had a really cool demo of it at the Kansas Fest. But anyway, he said the way he got around division stuff with all the 3D stuff in Lawless Legends was to use logarithms. And that totally makes sense. It's like, wow. So it's a perfect way because it's, here you are, you're trading space for speed. So the log tables and the inverse operation, which is exponentiation, they take space. They take, you know, room on in the memory. But since I'm working with an 8K game, I've got all this memory to work with. That's the perfect trade-off. So that's what I'm going to do. And 
then the problem was, okay, well, how do I figure out the division algorithms? How does it work? And so I spent some time during Kansas Fest when I wasn't working on my presentation and then subsequently, but I'm going to miss the retro challenge deadline because it's, it, it closes here at the end of July. And as I'm recording here, it's July 30th and it's <laughs> unlikely I'm going to be able to do any more work. So on Twitter, I kind of joked that this will be my retro challenge for the 2016 January challenge. So <laughs> maybe I can get it done before then. But anyway, I've made some progress uh, disassembling it a little bit and debugging it. Got some more details on the website. So I'll include links to that. And also include a couple links to some other Atari related projects in, in the retro challenge. There are at least two. There was one from Ian McLaughlin uh, called Colorflow. It was, uh, he was enhancing a program that he originally submitted to page six, which is a UK Atari magazine. So he made a bunch of changes. It's, uh, it's now, it works both on PAL and NTSC and it runs as a displays interrupt and stuff. So you can use it in the background. So I'll include a link to that. And there's another guy who did an amateur radio field day logger in Atari basic. And it kind of showed how he progressed to learn Atari basic because he really hadn't known much about it before this. And then I'll also include a link to the um, full list of retro challenge entries, a bunch of cool stuff. So I was not successful in completing my retro challenge, but it was fun to enter and it did motivate me to try to make some progress. So it was fun. Okay, let's dive into some magazines. The first one we'll cover this time is Byte Magazine for November 1981, volume six, number 11, two bucks 50 on the cover price. The cover, and again, I just love the Byte artwork. This is a, it's a tall filing cabinet into the sky and it's got filing cabinet drawers coming out of this, from all four sides of this like column file cabinet. So it's Clearly not something that could happen in real life, but on top is a sort of TRS-80 style all-in-one computer. And the only text on the cover is database management system. The only Atari-specific thing listed in the table of contents is the Atari tutorial part three, player missile graphics. So we'll get to that for sure. A lot of cool looking articles though. There's one on switching power supplies and introduction. So yeah, I'll probably check that out here in a second. Building a barcode scanner inexpensively. The microcomputer as a lab instrument. There's an article on the DIF format, which Wade covered in one of his episodes in uh, relation to um, Excel and spreadsheet stuff. There's an article on 6809 assembly language for all you Coco fans out there on a fourth-like language, a threaded language called PS, which I've never heard anything about. Oh, and an article that will be interesting given our game this month being ReverseI is uh, an article on the ReverseI program for the Atari or for the Apple II. I'm going to skip over the database stuff because that's not really my thing. Uh, but I'll send the links on to Wade. So this article on switching power supplies, and it's pretty in-depth. There's more electronics than I'm comfortable with. I can't remember. There's a switching power supply and there's something else. There's a different style of power supply. And I guess the switching power supplies are more efficient. Yeah, there's circuit diagrams and all sorts of stuff. Square roots math. All right. So yeah, if you're that's a really in-depth article that you probably be, would be interested in checking out if you're an electronics guy. I wish I was, but I'm not. I hope some of my kids will be interested. Maybe I can learn electronics with them. There is a good book that I almost didn't buy because it was by Microsoft Press. And at the time I was like, uh, anti-Microsoft and what I'm now I'm like, whatever. But yeah, so I got it right here. It's called Code by Charles Petzold. It says the hidden language of computer hardware and software it takes you down electronic circuits and then Boolean algebra and logic, which you know, I'm fine with. I understand all that stuff. But then it tells you how to build AND gates and OR gates and NOR gates and all that stuff. And in a way that I understood it. So yeah, so hopefully you haven't poo-pooed this book because it was published by Microsoft Press. Yeah, sort of an interesting theme that I always kind of would like to have some larger discussion on at some point is, is like brand loyalty and why we have brand loyalty and or why we are dismissive of other brands. You know, you have the Apple fanboys and the Android fanboys and all that stuff. And then 
you know, back in our time, it was Atari versus Commodore, Atari versus Apple, or Commodore versus Apple, or whatever. You know, Ford versus Chevy. What is the, what has the company ever really done for us? And why are we so loyal to these companies that just treat us like numbers? So anyway, this is a good book, and any. Yeah, don't let the Microsoft name fool you as it did me for quite a long time. So the barcode scanner article is another sort of do-it-yourself kind of thing, showing circuit diagrams and how to assemble things. Yeah, I love that Byte is so technical about all this stuff. Here's a software review of Reversal, the Othello for the Apple II. And I won't talk about this too much here because we'll talk about it in the game review. Here's the article about the computer is a data acquisition system in laboratories. And shoot, one of the antique interview episodes, they talked about a data acquisition system, and now I can't remember what it was. I can't remember which which um, interview it was, but hmm, if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Oop, there's an ad for the Listic, that Mercury Switch joystick. Byte sure, that does have a lot of ads, for sure. be interesting to do a page count of ad versus column. It seems to me just flipping through it, it's, like, it's almost like it might even be more than 50-50 ads versus, you know, actual text. But on the other hand, the articles are quite in-depth and detailed, and, you know, at this time, I remember looking at the ad, I wouldn't skip a page. I'd read the whole thing. You know, now, of course, with the internet and, and easier access to data, it's it's a much different story. But back then, you just devour everything that you could get. Here's the article about Diff, the format for data exchange between application programs. And I thought Diff was purely for, like, a spreadsheet program, but it turns out it's more of a general data exchange format. So it says here that it, it uses the terms vector and tuple instead of columns and rows, so that you can map them in various ways. So it's not just a spreadsheet interchange format, which is what I thought. There's certainly a lot of ads that support the Atari computer, though. It's definitely not, you know, marginalized here. Most every ad that has um, sales for computers has Atari section. So here you go. Here's the Atari tutorial part three player missile graphics. And it's by Chris Crawford. And he first talks about sort of traditional animation, just using, just changing the data in the, in the screen memory and the problems with that. And a big call out and the thing is this is the essence, the essence of the problem of the playfield animation is that the screen image is two dimensional while the image in memory is one dimensional. And so how, you know, when you have to put something on the next line down a memory, you're talking like could be 40 bytes away. And so there's a little assembly language listing kind of showing how complex it is. And it says, okay, here's a new approach. The solution was to create a graphics object that is one dimensional on the screen as well as one dimensional in memory. And so it talks about how the player gets overlaid and compares the sort of assembly language routine to, to move a player left and right. So, you know, five assembly instructions versus like 30 in the other one, in the previous listing. And it talks about some of the benefits that, that players and missile, missiles are independent of the play field, so you can mix them in any graphics mode and they aren't going to interfere with anything. It's a true overlay. It goes on to talk about some of the collision detection and all the variations that you can check for missile-to-player collisions, missile-to-playfield collisions, player-to-player collisions, and player-to-playfield collision. It says there are 54 possible combinations, each of which gets a bit assigned to it that can be checked. So if the bit's checked, a collision has occurred. And then you can clear that at any time by setting up the register hit clear, H-I-T-C-L-R. The GTI uses something called memory mapping, where it maps registers from the chip itself into RAM, or, well, into the ROM, the addressable ROM space. I think the Z80 processor took a different tact in that it had some like interrupts or special, I don't know, special commands or something to get. It. I, I don't know, but it was definitely different. But the, so the if you're programming the Atari, though, you're you're familiar with memory mapping of um, you know the Pokey and Anting and stuff. They're all memory mapped into the D thousand area, hex D thousand. Anyway, and it shows the layout of the players and missiles in memory, and it has a little basic example, kind of putting it all together and showing you know, how slow that is versus how the how fast the machine language code would need to be to really make games. So the article lists a whole bunch of different memory locations that are in the memory map. And Kevin Savitz has the mapping the Atari uh, posted on 
atarimagazines.com and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I talked to Kevin and I uh, helped him a little bit there. I, I made a little Python script to, so you can, you now can click the names of any referenced memory location. It'll take you to the definition of that on that page. And so he put that up on the Atari Magazine's um, website. So yeah, I'm definitely hoping to to program some game here sometime soon in my copious free time. But anyway, it's a nice, it's a nice long detailed article. It's corresponds to chapter four in Dayray Atari. And I'll include a link to the Atari Archives version of Dayray Atari. Oh, here's an ad for the track company that did the track drive that I used. All this are track five and a quarter and eight inch drives for, looks like not Atari. I don't know who these are for. Oh, there we go. Compatible with TRS-80, Heath, uh, Northstar, Apple II, and most S100 based systems. Oh, heck, I thought that was the end of this stuff, but they've got a big listing of all the memory locations. It's a uh, selected hardware registers in the Atari 400 and 800, and they have a whole bunch of stuff for all the, the player and missile stuff. And then they've got some charts of colors and the DMA stuff. And yeah, lots of, lots more info. There's an ad for the Ada language. It says, a language is born, a new comprehensive general purpose language named after Ada Augusta Byron, daughter of poet Lord Byron, who is credited with being the first computer programmer. Yeah, sometimes credited as Ada Lovelace. She worked with Charles Babbage, who and I went to the uh, Computer History Museum, and they have a Babbage machine there, and talked about how Babbage was just so ridiculously hard to deal with. <laughs> Here's an ad for something called uh, some company called ASAP Computer Products Inc. And it, in the biggest text in the ad is Atari is hot, and so are we. It says the Atari 800 computer is getting rave reviews. They don't actually list the price of the 800, but they uh, say the 810 disk drive is 455. The 815 <laughs> dual disk drive is. $1,195. Yikes. There's the article on 6809 assembly language. Structured assembly language. Interesting. Must be a particular assembler. Article on Prolog. It says a step toward the ultimate computer language. Yeah, clearly we all went the way of Prolog. And continuing the trend. P.S. A fourth-like threaded language. And so, yeah, we're all writing in fourth now as well. Huh. One of the retro challenge uh, entries was from Earl Evans, who's writing a fourth on uh, the Commodore 128. So, yeah, fourth is always really oddball looking to me. It's a bunch of words and sort of pages of text. And yeah, it's it's very, it's very different from the typical procedural language, stack-based, you know, reverse Polish notation calculator style. Apparently it could be implemented very efficiently on, you know, 8-bit style hardware. Well, that's about it for Byte. We made it through all, how many pages is this? 560 pages. There's certainly lots of stuff, lots of ads as well, but yeah, well worth checking out for technically inclined retro people. Okay, onto the compute. This is compute number 18, November 1981, $2.50 in the cover price. On the cover, there's an Atari data management program. And it has a little graphic with the, the word data where the final A is morphed into an Atari symbol as it goes. And also on the cover, it says, Inside Atari, exclusive IO secrets, the first of two parts. On the table of contents, the only Atari stuff there is uh, in the Atari Gazette. And it looks like the Inside Atari column is the Bill Wilkinson column. And it's always included in the Atari Gazette. Here's another one of those schizophrenic Atari ads. This is, you know, where they're trying to figure out if they're going to be a games computer or a productivity computer. So they try to do both. Talking about the graphic difference between Atari computers and all others. So they're emphasizing the graphics, which would seem to imply games, but, you know, they're trying to, they show some pie charts and stuff and trying to show that it's also work usable for business stuff. Oh, and then the next page, there's one of these Atari piracy. This game is over. Stupid ads that I railed about in episode 13, I think. Barking up the wrong tree in a consumer magazine. You know, they're actually talking to so- about software publishers. They're, yeah, so not a big fan of Atari marketing, as if you didn't already know that. Several articles on the Super Pet, which is uh, another version of the Pet with the uh, 64K of RAM. 
Oh, I guess it's 64K of additional RAM. So it's like 128K RAM, where it's a, they bank switch a 4K versions or 4K blocks, similar to how, um, you know, XL RAM is, is swapped out or the XE RAM is swapped in in a 1030 and a 130XE. There's an article about uh, Japanese micros, a first look. And so it lists uh, a bunch of different computers coming from Japan. The Sharp MZ80, the NEC PC8000, Casio FX9000. These are all, most of them seem to be like, kind of built-ins, you know, the monitor and disk drives are built into the main unit and some of them have like separate keyboards. But none of these really made inroads in the U.S. that much. There's an article called Telecommunications, What Is It? It's kind of an overview of modems and stuff. There's an article on basic Boolean math and or not, that kind of stuff. The practical side of assembly language, part two, talking about loops and arrays. So like comparing a for loop in basic to one analogous to it in machine language. There's a little article, uh, Introduction to Binary Numbers, how to do some simple stuff in base two. We'll skip over the Apple Gazette, but it's in there. And then the Atari Gazette comes up. So there's uh, the first article is Atari Data Atari Data Management and Database System. It's a basic program. It's a bunch of written over four or five pages. But I don't know, there's no screenshot. There's no sort of... You kind of read the whole article, figure out what it's about. And even then, I don't really understand what's going on. So it's kind of a... I don't know, not great advertising in this article for about, I wouldn't want to type this thing in with because I don't really know enough about what it does. So yeah, I give that a pass. There's an article, a program for writing programs on the Atari. So it's like a meta program. So a program that spits out other programs, kind of a, you know, to create a little basic program for your needs, you know, kind of like analogous to self-modifying code in assembly language. Here's the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson. It says we start a three or four part series on assembly language input output. And it said, also, this month's program contains a list of major known bugs in Atari Basic, how to get around them. So it's talking about like IO control blocks and stuff, and uh, I use them from assembly language. The IO, the IO control routines, you can open or close a device, get status, get or put text, and get or put data. And then you can use the same IO control blocks to all the different uh, devices, you know, the, the screen editor, the keyboard for input, the screen for output, the printer, a cassette, or a disc. Really kind of ahead of its time. Because by changing a device driver, you could change the functionality. But you didn't have to change any of your code to write or read from any, any of these. And then here we get a list of the bugs in BASIC. So I wonder if this is BASIC Revision A. I think a lot of these were fixed in Revision B, but then they, reused, they introduced one new bug in Revision B. I think finally by Revision C, the stuff that was built into the XLs, pretty much all the bugs were fixed. on Atari timing delays. So instead of using like a for loop in BASIC, you can actually use a little machine language routine that uh, looks like it counts from the vertical blank. There's a simple little program, printing numbers that make sense. So talking about printing to the thousandth or to the hundredth place. Another two little one-page article about formatting input. Again, a little basic program. And still from a sort of typesetting point of view, like all of the, they haven't settled on a consistent theme yet. So all the little type in listings are all on a different font. Some are in like a proportional space font. Some are in like dot matrix printing. Some are in a like sans serif font. Just one of those things that I, for some reason, take notice of. Probably the only one that does that. It's a program called TextPlot, which is a machine language little subroutine that you can, it'll plot the pixels of a, a tasky character on a graphics screen. It says it works with modes, um, basic modes three, five, and seven. That looks like it's it for the Atari Gazette. I need to get better about trying to re- list all the authors too. Um, I forgot to do that this time, but I'll try to remember to do that. Yep, yeah, and that's pretty much it of the interesting stuff in this compute as well. Or interesting from an Atari point of view anyway. All right, going to add a new magazine to the rotation. This is Computer and Video Games, a UK magazine. This is its very first issue starting in November 1981. 75p. Let's see, 75p in 1981 is 2 pounds 88 today. Now, how do I convert this to 
$4. Looks like 4 bucks 50 in today's dollars. I couldn't find a lot of background info on the magazine itself. I just found a Wikipedia article. I'm sort of loath to use Wikipedia as a primary source, but I couldn't find a lot, of, lot else. I did find that it was, up until very recently, was still actually active. The print magazine itself, I guess, was stopped in 2004, but the website, computerandvideogames.com, just recently closed here in February of 2015. So yeah, it was a monthly magazine between November 1981, which is now in the podcast, and October 2004. And it covered both home computing games and arcade games. Wikipedia says, at the time of launch, it was the world's first dedicated video games magazine. Although, we'll see it has a competitor at this very month. Wikipedia says the magazine typically had a circulation of about 100,000 issues every month. I will look for some primary source references and um, update you in the next episode. So this will probably be one of the magazines to cover more quickly than others, because there's not a lot of Atari stuff, at least in this early going. Looking at the table of contents, they got a sort of an introduction here. It says, try to think of something more exciting than a computer. What do you come up with? A trip to the Amazon? Scoring goal for England? Landing on Mars? Maybe beating the bank at Monte Carlo? A computer will give you the chance to do any of these in your own living room. It says, this magazine is putting the accent firmly on games. We are not commenting on computers as hardware, but as means to an end, and that is entertainment. And it says they're looking for help for views, reviews, and uh, game listings for us to print, it says. And later on, my friend Neil does have some stuff published in this magazine, so we'll look at that when we get there. So looking to see the ads, there's a ad for an Atari 800 16K version for 560 pounds, which and the currency cover I found is quite convoluted, so I'm going to skip converting the currency for a little bit until I figure out a better way to do it. But going on the ratio, that's probably about equivalent to 2,500 bucks or something, which is just crazy. So the UK computers, they, they, it looks like there's lots of ads for like the Acorn Atom and the Sinclair ZX81. There's a contest here. It says, win a Taito Space Invaders. And they show a picture of the um, like sit-down version of the game. So there's a picture of three creatures on a, you know pixelated creatures, black and white representations. And you've got to guess those and then write in an answer for the question, I think Space Invaders proved so popular because... Give your name, address, and telephone and send it into the magazine. And you could win. It's an ad for the ZX81 kit for £49.95 and built for £69.95. A couple pages on chess. Article about how to try to beat maze games. Kind of strategies in sort of general terms about how to meet. They say Pac-Man, Puck-Man, Pick-Man, or Maze-Man, which <laughs> sort of ROM hacks of Pac-Man apparently. Article on Wizard of War. Oh, there's another article. Here's an article on Othello. Yeah, serendipitous choice for my game of the podcast here. Okay, there's a basic Space Invaders game for the NASCOM 2, whatever that is, I'll have to find that out. There's a strategy game called Super Nim on the Apple II, another basic game. Rainbow Passage, a VIC-20 basic game. And Nibblers, another basic game for the, this is the Pet, a tarot card game for the TRS-80. City Bomb, which is a 2K game for the Sinclair ZX-80 or ZX-81. It's like 50 lines of basic, not even that. 40 lines of basic. Oh, and here's an Atari game, Trench. It's a relive the climactic final battle of Star Wars. Here's Dodgems for the Acorn Atom. Musical Hangman for the Sharp MZ-80. Yeah, none of those listings had screenshots, so it's kind of hard to tell what they'd be like. And it's always it was more interesting for me, if I was going to invest the time typing this stuff, I would, I'd like to know what they would look like. There's a section on electronic toys, Christmas Parade. And I only mention this because there's a picture of this this little spaceship that I actually had. It's a spaceship toy. It's probably, oh, I don't know, over a foot long, plastic. And there's a picture of it, but there's no caption, so I'm trying to figure out which one it is. Oh, the Starbird Avenger. It has little buttons on it. You press it and make these like li- these little lights light up on the front and kind of have this little you know pew pew kind of sound. Ah, wow, it's interesting. I wonder if I still have that. But so it looks like this magazine will cover some toys too. 
has a two-page article on basic language, and there's some reviews of games, none of which I know, so probably for some UK games that I've not seen on our systems. It's an ad for the Acorn Atom, and on the back cover there's a an ad for a company selling hardware, and it's all Atari stuff. So yeah, 645 pounds for the Atari 800. Yikes. Now we'll look at that other contender for the first video game magazine. This is Computer Gaming World, Volume 1, uh, November, December 1981. So this is the first time we're looking at this magazine. And again, there's a great site. Um, it's cgwmuseum.org that's dedicated to the scans of uh, Computer Gaming World. But I could not find on the site like a summary of the history. So I'm again, I'm sort of going by a Wikipedia article, which is... I don't know, everything on Wikipedia is true, so I shouldn't complain. So, But it, um, the early issues were bi-monthly and um, sort of written in a newsletter style, it says. Um, I can't... It doesn't seem too newsletter here. It seems like a re- regular magazine. But in 1986, they increased to nine times a year. And then uh, in 1988, they went monthly. And continued monthly until 2006, which had its final issue, issue number 268 in November of uh, 2006. So it was a long-running magazine. The page counts kept growing, and about 200 pages by the time they got into the 90s. And then after Ziff Davis purchased them in uh, 95, the magazine kept growing, and by uh, 97, they were 500 pages long. So these early issues, you know, they're they're well under 100 pages. And uh, their focus is on computer games and not arcade games like uh, computer and video games. So this is all home computer-based stuff, at least for now. We'll see as it goes along. But uh, they solicited articles from famous game designers as well as having their own editorial staff. So let's check it out. On the cover is some artwork. That, and they feature this artist regularly, apparently, Tim Finkus. And Wikipedia says that a lot of the times the covers were just like art not necessarily relating to any particular game or review in the magazine. And so this one is like a horned dragon head or something popping out of a looks like an Apple-style computer because it's got a Disk 2-ish design on the, for the disk drive. So no writing on the cover, it just says Computer Gaming World, Volume 1, Number 1, and two bucks seventy-five on the color cover price. The table of contents page shows the editor is Russell Sipe, and Tim Finkus does the art and layout. There's no mention of Atari on the cover page. In fact, the only computer mentioned by name is uh, the Political Apple article by Russell Sipe. The next page, it says Writing for Computer Gaming World. It says, if you would like to write for the magazine and would like to hear from you, beginning with issue number two, we'll pay you two cents per word. Looking for micro-reviews, which are 400 words or less. Featuring articles on popular computer games, playing aids, scenarios, etc. Feature articles, which are 500 to 2,000 words, will have a better chance of being printed if you clear the subject with the editor before submitting it. And there's a from the editor note. It says, Many people have expressed the view that the time for a magazine on computer gaming is overdue, and hopefully we have corrected the problem. CGW is designed to meet your needs as a computer gamer. Each issue will evaluate computer games, give advice on strategy and tactics, announce new products, and provide a forum for you, the reader, to become active in the rapid nationwide development of the computer gaming hobby. And it says we hope to have a letter to the editor column beginning with the second or third issue, so please write. Here's an article on the future of computer wargaming by Chris Crawford. Clearly, he's a guy who can do this because he wrote Eastern Front 1941, and in fact, he plugs the game during the uh, during the articles, saying that if it can be done on a 16K Atari 400 with only cassette, that it can be done for other systems. He says, I dare say it is the best war game currently available, better even than games requiring 48K and a disc. And in parentheses, please indulge me, my vanity, but I really think it's true. It is a good game, for sure. So it's just kind of an overview of the computer gaming, war gaming scene. And it says, which machine will dominate the computer war game industry? Has the pet and TRS-80 are out of the running, the Apple II dominates the market at present. However, the greater power of the Atari, with its rapidly growing user base, indicate that it will challenge and probably pass the Apple within a year or two. Yeah, that didn't happen. 
Ah, the benefit of hindsight. So there's a couple articles on reviews, and these are like very detailed reviews, like several page reviews, including some maps and stuff. The only one for uh, that works on the Atari, though, is Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, which I consider reviewing for the podcast, but it's just it's more of a strategy thing, and it's uh, hard for me to get time to review things, so I'm more interested in the quick-to-play sort of arcade-style games. Or, it turns out, this game, this episode is a, a board game, but I remember playing this game, and I keep... I kept confusing my mind with Rampage when I was thinking back, but it's definitely not Rampage. It's uh, sort of a top-down view game, but it had you know some strategy elements too. In the micro-review section, there's a review of Eastern Front. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a glowing review. If you own an Atari personal computer, you owe it to yourself to have this game. <laughs> and if you're considering purchase of a personal computer but haven't decided on which one yet, take a look at this game at your local computer store and it'll make you look twice at the Atari system. And basically, they're... they're they're really impressed with the ability for the computer to do its thinking in the background during the vertical blank. There's a micro-review of Reversal, which is, I think, the same game that they talked about in the Byte magazine. So again, it's a version of Othello. So this is a... Yeah, it was a good choice of me. I had no idea that all these magazines were had reviews of Othello games, but they have, and so it makes my choice even more appropriate. So I think one of the differences between this magazine and computer and video games is there are no program listings in this one. And I'm not sure yet, because I haven't read ahead, I'm not sure if this is going to change in subsequent issues or if it's pretty much just going to be a review of you know published games and not any programming. So we'll see as we go along. And now a listener is going to review creative computing. This is Greg Miletic. He's one of the hosts of the Golden Horseshoe Review podcast, the director of the movie Tilt, The Battle to Save Pinball, and a longtime Atari user. Hi, Rob. This is Greg Miletic, and I am incredibly excited to be going over the November 81 issue of Creative Computing. I asked Rob about the possibility of reviewing a magazine a few weeks back, and he suggested this issue, and I was like, uh, okay, I'll take a look. And I saw the cover, and I was just blown away by what was inside this thing. I'll read off a couple of the highlights. It starts off with Atari Color Explained. Color is a great topic on the Atari 8-bit computer, so that's exciting. But then there's lots of amazing non-Atari stuff as well. Electronic Mail, what's coming? The sneak preview of the Sinclair ZX81. A review of Raster Blaster, which was an amazing Apple II game and became an amazing Atari game. And then finally, the big one, the IBM personal computer introduction is covered in this issue. So this is a very, very big deal, and I couldn't be more excited to be looking over it tonight. Let me explain a bit about my background with the Atari 8-bits. I had been an Atari fan all through the 70s, playing their games in the arcade. And then my parents got me a VCS for Christmas uh, 77, and just, I was obsessed with it. We played it constantly. And when personal computers started coming out, my dad took notice. He was intrigued by the Apple II, but he also was really intrigued by the TI 994A and the, or I guess just the 4 at that point, and the Ataris, and then also the Exidy Sorcerer was really interesting as well. I was actually partial to the Exidy Sorcerer before I'd seen it, just by the name alone, because in the arcades, there were two XD games out in 78, 79 that I loved. There was Starfire, which was a full-color game that was beautiful. It was inspired by 
by Star Wars, obviously, but I know that it must have been the inspiration for Star Raiders, because Star Raiders looks a whole lot like Starfire. The other game was Tail Gunner, which is an amazing 3D game. So, already I was kind of on Exidy's side. But the Sorcerer didn't quite live up to my dreams. It didn't look like it could play the games that were in the arcades. And the 800 obviously could, and once we saw Star Raiders, it looked pretty darn sweet. We also looked at TI pretty extensively. My dad, I remember him very clearly telling the salesperson, you know, TI comes into these markets, uh, they're never the first player, but they always come in second or third, and then they just totally clean up. And I don't know enough about TI history to know whether that's true or not, but that was my dad's feeling and his worry about going with something besides TI. But um, sadly, it did not work out for the TI home computer line. We also thought seriously about the Apple II, but it just seemed, I guess, kind of pricey and not as graphically competent, I think. Uh, I mean, it was good four or $500 more, I think, than the Atari. So it just didn't seem that compelling. Um, I think also most of the Apple IIs we saw didn't have color monitors. Green CRTs were the kind of de facto standard for Apples back then. Anyway, Atari was what we settled on, and I was ecstatic with it. I used it constantly. Did a lot of basic programming, played a lot of Star Raiders, um, used the Atari educational system for a little while. That was a pretty cool system. Just did a lot of stuff with it, and just was... It was my best friend for a long time, and I still, it's still my favorite computer that I've ever owned. That's why I enjoy podcasts like Player Missile so much. It's just such an intense pleasure to go back and, and relive my moments with that system and understand more thoroughly what was going on. I was in sixth grade at the time, and it, it, a lot of the topics like display lists and things were a little beyond me at that point. It's wonderful to listen to discussions about that now and completely understand what's going on. Um, it's just, anyway, I, I, I could go on forever, but it's, it's just great. Let me tell you a bit about myself now. I live here in Portland, Oregon, work for a really cool software company called Panic, and I do iOS apps for them. Formerly lived in San Francisco, used to work for Apple a very long time ago in marketing, actually. So I've been all around the computer industry, but this 8-bit era is definitely my my absolute favorite. So, let's take a look at this issue of creative computing. First of all, the basics. As I said, November 1981, Volume 7, Number 11, $2.50. And I looked up on the inflation calculator, the conversion rate. It was about 26 and so any dollar figures I quote, you should multiply by 2.5, 2.6 to get the figure, the appropriate figure. So in this case, $2.50, I think that ends up being about $6.25 in today's dollars, which isn't so bad. It's like a 280-page magazine chock full of plenty of good stuff. So that actually sounds kind of like a bargain to me. Here on page seven is something really interesting, not Atari related, but it's an ad from Microsoft Consumer Products in Bellevue, Washington. So this, in fact, is that Microsoft. And they're selling a, a Z80 card for the Apple II that runs CPM. So for one, I mean, Microsoft sold hardware for the Apple II. I didn't know that. They were pushing CPM? 
that's kind of mind-blowing, too. I mean, I actually kind of vaguely remember this ad, but I never would have put this all together. It's kind of amazing seeing it now. Page 15 has an interesting ad from Software Arts. Software Arts was the company that made VisiCalc, and uh, to accompany your VisiCalc purchase, you could subscribe to something called the Software Arts Technical Notes, which was a monthly or quarterly publication that was basically tips and tricks for VisiCalc, which sounds great, except they promote it under the name of SATN, Satan, Satan the Journal for VisiCalc Users. And I don't, I don't, I can't believe they did that. It's called Satan. Anyway, if anybody has a copy of Satan or used to subscribe to Satan, I would really, really like to know more about that. And here on page 14 is the big deal. It's the review of the IBM personal computer. Although, to be fair, it's actually not a review. It's just kind of a sneak preview. It's written by Betsy Staples. And she obviously went to some sort of press event where they introed the computer. And she did get to touch it. But there isn't much in the way of heavy-duty technical review. I mean, she does go through the graphics modes and all that kind of stuff, but it is less thorough than I would imagine a full-on review to be. But the thing that really struck me, let me read the first two paragraphs. Quote, didn't they make any mistakes? Unquote. Asked one of our staff members in disbelief upon hearing our description of the new IBM personal computer. Not that we could see was the response. And this is the tenor of the entire review. This computer, the IBM PC, is basically perfect in their estimation. A little pricey, but easily the best designed machine in its class. And that fascinated me because the the take on the IBM PC now, looking back, is that it was a bunch of off-the-shelf components that were thrown together, and then they tacked on an operating system from Microsoft, and they just kind of pushed this thing out the door. But this review, they think it's spectacular. Just to confirm that it wasn't just a weird one-off, I looked at the Byte issue where they reviewed the IBM PC for the first time, and they called it the best designed personal computer they'd ever seen. So this kind of blew me away. The IBM PC is... People were raving about it. Now, like I mentioned, it's on the expensive side. There's no question. The price... I'm reading from the review now. The price of the basic unit is $1,565. A system with 64K of memory, monitor, and disk drive would be around $3,000. And an expanded system for business use with color graphics, two disk drives, and printer would cost about $4,500. So obviously, this is way more expensive than, say, an Atari or an Apple II. Although, okay, so let me think. Well, we're in 81 now, so an Atari costs about 750 bucks. The disk drive costs probably 600 bucks. So we're at 1350. Monitor is at 2000. So we're talking over, well, more than twice as much. But I, I have to concede that the, the IBM PC is in a different class in terms of business applications. It had built-in 80 columns. It has built-in 640 by 200 black and white graphics and a 16 color lower res mode. And uh, one of the things they called out as being spectacular, one of the nicest components of the system is the 83 key typewriter-like keyboard, which offers access to 256 characters, including APL symbols, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the keyboard that came with the IBM PC is spectacular. So, enough about the IBM PC, but just, it was fascinating to take a look at this first view of this important system. 
Here on page 17, there's a nice big color ad for Amdeck monitors. I remember I got an Amdeck monitor for my Atari, probably in 83, I guess. And man, that looked great. I loved, I had been using a TV for a long time and that was okay. But I remember getting the Amdeck and plugging it in and then rebooting all my software, relaunching all of it just to see what it looked like. So, you know, launch Ultima 4, play Star Raiders again, play Missile Command, do some graphics 8 experiments. All this stuff had to be done all over again just to see what it looked like on this new monitor. And it was pretty great. This is interesting. Huntington Computing. It's an ad. Uh, it's a company that sells Atari PET and TRS-80 software. And in the Atari section, they lead off with Adventure International. And they have, they have the whole AI slate here from Adventureland down to um, Savage Island 2. Yes, yeah, so that's most of it, I think. And it's each one is priced at $19.95 on cassette now on sale for $16.74. So if you use that 2.5 multiple, that's about 40 bucks per adventure, which is actually, I would say, a totally fair price. 40 bucks for, you know, at least 10 hours of play, probably more than that. That sounds like a totally reasonable price. Um, they're also selling VisiCalc, regular $200 list, now 149 and again that's about 350 bucks if i'm thinking properly 375 375 for like the premier application of its era sounds totally fair to me they sell it for the pet um i didn't know there was visicalc for the pet that's interesting had no idea here's the review of the sinclair zx81 by david tebbett um i didn't know a lot about the sinclair systems i had a friend that had one and they were they were a big presence at the time, but I didn't interact with them very much. I'll quote, For the benefit of those unfamiliar with the ZX80, it was the first ready-built computer to break the psychological $200 price barrier. The main limitations of the ZX80 were the fact that it could not handle floating point numbers or cassette files. So what on the ZX81 is new compared to the ZX80? First, an extra 4K of ROM is provided, which allows 30-odd additional functions to be incorporated. One of the most striking things I remember about the ZX81 uh, that my friend had is every time you typed a key on the keyboard, the entire screen would erase and redraw itself. That kind of blew me away. Why is it doing that? Um, apparently, there is a fast and slow mode, according to this review. I'll quote, If you need to see the screen continuously, then slow mode is a boon. If you don't, say, if you were doing lots of calculations, then it's better to use fast mode. And when you look at the benchmarks, Boy, are they right. Slow mode is about four times slower. Must have been some sort of contention over display RAM and I don't even know. The CPU, who who knows, but uh, some sort of contention over something important. But that was kind of fascinating. The kind of compromises that needed to be made in order to get you a $150 computer in 1981. Anyway, that was an important system. For a lot of people, that was their first computer. There's a really interesting article by a guy named Ted Nelson called Mail Chauvinism about the Electronic Mail and Message Conference held in Washington, D.C. on December 11th and 12th, 1980. These people are talking about the idea of email and who is going to regulate it. Uh, here's an excerpt. Then came representatives and spokesmen for the U.S. Postal Service essentially explaining why they felt a need and a right to control electronic mail as they saw it. What the Postal Service wants to do might narrow and restrict what you can do in the future with your computer. 
So this was fascinating. I had no idea the the U.S. Post Office wanted to control the email services of the United States at one point in time. And we can only be incredibly, incredibly happy that that did not happen. Here at the back is the new products section. And of note is the TI-994A was introduced. The new console features upper and lowercase letters arranged as on a standard typewriter keyboard. An automatic repeat function has been added, and special keys have been included to simplify access to the special computer functions. $525. Good to know. Oh, here's... Okay, Atari, uh, this is from uh, a company called Computer Mail Order in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Atari 800 for $749. Atari 810 disk drive for $444. So, boy, that dropped quite a bit um, in the couple years it had been out. I think it used to be almost 700 bucks when it premiered. It's nice it was only 444 now. Uh, here we go. Here's the part that uh, you folks would have cared about the most were it 1981. Uh, we're an Outpost Atari, written by David and Sandy Small, a regular column in Creative Computing, and it's all about color registers. I could go into a lot of detail on this article, but you guys know this stuff, actually. Um, backwards and forwards, I'll have to say. This seems like a really nice overview of how to do color in basic. I mean, color is an incredible topic on the Atari. The fact that you had color registers is such a cool feature. It's it's amazing stuff, and it's covered here. It's actually a two-part column. The first part talks about color registers, and the second one is all about display lists. Some nice block diagrams of how color registers work. It's a good article. Boy, this is an amazing issue of creative computing. Um, just jam-packed with really important stuff. And I encourage you guys to go look it up. I want to thank Rob for giving me the opportunity to talk about this issue and to relive this incredible part of my childhood. And I wanted to just mention a little bit more about myself. If you, like me, are into retro technology, then you would might also like a documentary I made a few years ago called Tilt the Battle to Save Pinball. It came out actually about eight or nine years ago. It's on iTunes, PlayStation, and Amazon now, as well as DVD. And it talks about a valiant last stage effort to try and save uh, Williams Pinball in 1999. They were the world's largest pinball manufacturer. And if you like stories about technological obsolescence, then you will like the film. Also, if you're a Disney fan, I do another podcast called The Golden Horseshoe Review. I encourage you to look it up. We talk about Disneyland and Disney World and all sorts of theme park stuff. It's a lot of fun, and if you're into that, uh, I hope you can join us. Thanks very much. Yeah, I definitely recommend that you check out The Golden Horseshoe Review. It's a, it's a fun podcast. The three hosts have a really good rapport, and it's just funny. I mean, they have a lot of good stories about the parks and there's, they have just really amazingly detailed knowledge of, of all the parks and the rides. And so if, if you're interested in Disneyland, Disney World, any of the Disney theme parks, it's a great podcast to listen to. I had heard of the movie Tilt, but I hadn't seen it. And uh, so now after after talking with Greg, you know, just coordinating the the magazine stuff for the podcast. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. It sounds like a, a really cool movie. Even though, you know, I'm not really that into pinball, but still the the sort of the subject matter of the the creation of these games, I think would just be a lot of fun to watch. So I'm definitely going to seek that out 
and maybe I can do a movie review sometime. How do I get together a, a documentary list of all the sort of video game related documentaries? I know Jason Scott is working on one about arcades. He's this guy, same guy that did Get Lamp and is a archivist at the Internet Archive. But thanks again, Greg. I appreciate your review. And if you, the listener, would like to try to review one of these magazines, just let me know. We can work something out. The only one I'm for sure not giving up is Analog. So any other one's fair game if you're interested in review, reviewing one of those. And you don't, you're not, you don't have to sign yourself up for, to review this like forever. Just, if you just want to review one magazine and not do any more, that's fine. It's, I'm just looking for people who might be interested in, in looking at it and kind of the sort of the style that I'm presenting, you know, like summarizing the articles and from an Atari perspective. So yeah, if you're interested in helping out, just let me know. It's, you can contact me at feedback at playermissile.com and we'll talk about it. Now let's look at Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. This is number 42 for November 1981. It's $2.50 cover price. On the screen, it's sort of like a NORAD computer, except you're inside the computer looking out at the keyboard and the, the radar display and the letters and stuff are all backwards. And you have an old 70s-style blinking light computer in the far background. It says special games feature, but no other no mention of the Atari on the cover. Looking at the table of contents here, there's one game specifically called out for the Atari. It's called Saucer Launch. It says, you against the flying saucers. And yeah, and wouldn't you know it? There's a Othello game here. I wonder if it's the review of the same, the same one. We'll check it out in a second, because it is for the Apple. In the editorial, it says, uh, long-time readers are probably surprised to find games in the magazine. It says, our long-standing editorial policy has been to limit games unless they have social redeeming value, in quotes, since they may be found in many other magazines or be purchased directly. It says, we're relaxing our policy for this issue because we have not had any games for so long and because the holiday season is approaching. So have fun. So interesting. There's an article on precision programming. It's talking about procedural programming in BASIC, which is almost an oxymoron. And then it goes into a lot of flowcharting using, you know, do loops and sort of a pseudo language, not not really any particular language. There's a Pascal tutorial. There's an auto line number program for the Ohio Scientific Computer for its BASIC, although interestingly written in machine language. There's a Kim memory dump routine. And then here's an article on Atari. It's uh, From Here to Atari by James Caporell. And we'll know that name because he eventually publishes the Antic magazine. So this article is about uh, Atari graphics and, and in particular the um, scrolling capabilities of the machine. So it has a couple of bas- basic listings on how to do scrolling, set up the display list and stuff. Antic's first issue is April of 82. So another five episodes or so, I'll be looking at Antic for the first time. So certainly by now, November 81, he's probably planning Antic. Because, you know, lead time for magazines is several months. And, um, yeah, so interesting. So, yeah, we'll see if any more articles from him turn up in in this magazine. Oh, here we go. Stupid ad from Atari. Piracy, this game is over. What are they wasting their money on that ad for? Man. There's a Lunar Lander game for the TRS-80. It's a game called Galacticube, written in BASIC for the Apple II, looks like. There's an article called The Games People Buy. It's a, a look at the games market from the point of view of the dealer and the manufacturer. It's a, so dealers like software stores and stuff. And then the manufacturers, the, they talk about Broderbund and Budgeco, some other companies that uh, were around at the time. And talking about authors, they say, you know, while some software companies write their games in-house, most uh, outsource it. And they have a number that says Adventure International claimed that 80% of its games were written outside. So here's the Atari game Saucer Launch. It's written combination basic and assembly language. And so they've got listings of both the basic part and the assembly language part. No screenshot, which... Yep, definitely a little pet peeve of mine not to include a, sc- a screenshot. And then here's the Othello program. This is for uh, AppleSoft Basic. So it's uh, a game written 
for the magazine. So it's not a review of the game. So it's, it's obviously different than the one they were talking about in the other magazines. So just looking at the code, it's a uh, two-player game. So there's no computer opponent. So it's pretty. It's a pretty simple program then. You don't have to worry about the, the game logic deciding what piece to move. It's another game. There's a simple version of Pong for the pet. It's written in assembly language. And then we kind of move past the game part of the magazine. So then there's an article on the 6809 assembly. There's an article about the Apple II using attaching it to a oscilloscope and storing the, the data that comes off of it. And there's one of the features that I really like about this magazine is they have a bibliography. So they're kind of cataloging the articles that appear in other places. Like here's the Call Apple magazine, which we heard at Kansas Fest. There was a little talk about that. And uh, Cider Press, Washington Apple Pie magazines. Some of these magazines I remember from hearing in the Open Apple podcast and Drop Three Inches. But then there's stuff from, uh, there's a the Atari Computer Enthusiasts Volume 2, Issue 3, from March 1981, from wherever that is. It lists all the articles in there. This is great. Yeah, somebody spent a long time cataloging all that stuff. So I wonder if we can find any of those. And that's it for Micro, and that's it for me reviewing magazines in this episode. But we still have one magazine left, and that's Michael Glazer with Softside. Hey, pod peoples. Well, it appears Rob's giving another shot at covering Softside. This month's magazine is chock full of goodness, so let's get started. It's November 1981, issue 38, volume 5, number 2. We've got a musical edition of Softside this month. Although I do like that 8-bit funk, the TRS-80 and Apple IIs weren't really known for their musical ability, so let's hope the Atari versions aren't direct port from those less-than-melodic machines. Stay tuned, or in tune, to find out. The Fly the Bumblebee is the subject of this month's cover. A musically inclined user controls a whimsical brass bumblebee. The bumblebee, in turn, places his own tune on the flute. The text on the page reads, Music and the Micro, and Flight of the Bumblebee. The illustration was by Bill Geis. In the input section, article titled, Editor's Reply, Amen. Tim Gray from Burke, Virginia suggests basic thesaurus of challenging commands from one basic to another. For example, which commands are similar to the Apple basic HTAB and VTAB on the Atari? I think this is a great idea. I would have loved to take the programs I wrote at school home and figure out a way to convert them to work on my Atari. In the hints and enhancements section, Poke your Atari. What happens when you start poking around in your Atari's memory, specifically location 775? Well, you get some very interesting text effects. For example, poking 0 gives you reverse inverse video, poking 1 gives you blacked out inverse video, and poking 6 displays characters upside down. By poking two different numbers with a delay between them, you can create a combination of effects. For example, 0 reverse inverse video, and two, no effect normal video with a slight delay in between will display flashing text. Outgoing mail. Atari software shortage. Sawside acknowledges they haven't been publishing as many Atari programs as they would like, but submissions by readers haven't been as original as they would have preferred. They request more readers submit original programs and not modifications to one previously published. So I didn't realize that a lot of software published by the magazine was user submitted. What a cool opportunity for both Sawside and up and coming developers. Say Yo-Ho by Scott Adams. Adventure conversion continued. Scott discusses his process for getting his adventures up and running on the Atari computers. First step is to transfer the files from his Apple II to the Atari, but he wasn't able to get the RS-232 interface to work with the Atari's disk system. It turns out the Atari peripherals have their drivers built into ROM, and when the system boots, the drivers are loaded into memory. The driver then overwrites areas of memory that DOS 1 needs. Whoops. The first solution is to use DOS 2, which fixes this bug. The next step is to transfer all the source files from the Atari assembler 
So I can start converting the interpreter. So if I understand this correctly, Scott would write the game engine on each machine and create a data file for each game. When he wanted to create a new game, all he had to do is create another data file. The coding of the engine was already done. Talk about a time saver. Unfortunately, the assembler he was using didn't store data files in ASCII, so he couldn't dump the source files to the data link. Luckily, the way the Apple II is designed, he could simply link the RS-232 to screen memory. As the items appeared on the screen, they would automatically go over the RS-232 link. Of course, it ain't going to be that simple. The Atari RS-232 links to the audio serial bus to the main computer to avoid radio frequency interface problems. This slows down the transfer and doesn't allow the transfer to keep up with the screen rate. So he hooked up his TRS-80 Model 2 to the Apple and was able to get the entire source onto one 8-inch floppy. He will finish his explanation of this process in the future episodes, but I just have to say... That was impressive, and just shows you the ingenuity of those developers at the time. Scott continues the article by discussing developing copyright standards. The accepted industry copyright standard was, and still could be, based on source code similarities. If a program used the same or very similar source code of a previously existing program, it was considered pirated and an infringement on the copyright, and Atari is in agreement with this. Michael Sherrand, patent counsel for Atari, has stated... The true value of software product lines is in its end value, that aspect of the program which is actually interacted with by the end user. In the case of an arcade game, the audio-visual output. Atari has copyrighted its coin-operated games as audio-visual material. This means the screen of Atari Asteroids coin-operated is copyrighted for the audio and visual value. When any one of the 50 or so companies imitate Asteroids and other pre-existing arcade games, they are borrowing from the audiovisual output value of the original version. Hmm. When Atari copyrighted Magnavox Odyssey's table tennis and called it Pong, that was okay. But for everyone else, here's your lawsuit. So if you're going to make a game where there's a ship in space, just don't make it shoot at big rocks and flying saucers. Got it. Scott goes on to say that this is a new concept of audiovisual copyright for arcade games and does not seem to be unreasonable, albeit untested. The difficulty will be in deciding what the measure is of similar audiovisual value when different computer systems have different capabilities. So that's interesting. This isn't about the aspect of the game, but the ability to reproduce the exact experience. It appears from Scott's perspective that if the game is worse looking than the original, copyright laws might not be broken. Hmm. So what if the game is technically superior? He suggests developers work harder on original titles instead of copying someone else's work. I think it's a great concept, but doesn't work well in the real world. I'd rather have a variety in software titles, but history has proven that consumers are more willing to pay for products they recognize than something more original and unfamiliar to them. Flight of the Bumblebee Flight of the Bumblebee is an orchestral interlude to Nikolai Rimsky's Korsakoff's 1900 opera, The Tale of Tsar Sultan. The piece closes Act 3, during which the magic swan bird changes the Tsar's son into an insect. A bee, perhaps? So that he can fly away to visit his father. The developers, William Morris and John Cope, have created a digital representation, including animation. The 16K basic program is for the Atari, Apple, and TRS Eddy. I couldn't find a copy online, so I ended up typing the program in myself. You're presented with a title, composer, and author of the program. After a short wait, you're brought to a field of flowers on green grass under blue sky. Nearby sits a beehive. At the bottom of the screen, a message is displayed repeating the information about the program and composer. An energetic little bee flies about to the notes of the music. When the song ends, it repeats. Let's take a listen. As you can tell, it really doesn't take advantage of the Atari's musical strengths, 
That is probably because the developers had to port this to three different computers with different capabilities. Out of the three versions, the Atari looks best graphically. Even if the demo isn't impressive, it's a good starting point if you're interested in producing music on the Atari, and the authors have done a good job of explaining what is happening at different points in the code. I want to give special thanks to Peter Dell for fixing some of the bugs in the code. I will attempt to upload this to ataramania.com for your listening pleasure. Melody Dice by Gary Cage. Melody Dice is a musical graphical game for the Atari, Apple, and TRS-80. The Atari version requires 24K and can be found on ataramania.com. Typos and all. The game contains 60 flashcards, each containing one measure of a Scott Joplin song. Ten of these cards are picked randomly by rolling a pair of dice five times. After you roll five dice, you have a choice to play the song or roll again. Playing the song will first display five scales. As the notes play, they will be displayed on the scale. You also have the option to save the song's data off to a tape or load it back in. Although the program states the game, it is not. What it does offer to a basic programmer is to look into how to display notes in a scale. AtariMania.com is currently rated at 1.5 out of 10, with two votes. Atari DV Volleyball, a game originally written by Jim Hilger for the Apple in July's issue, was adapted by Bradley J. Bell for the Atari. It is a 32K graphical game that uses the four joystick ports of the Atari 800. Very cool. Players near the net have the ability to spike the ball, and all players can serve. The game ends when a team gets a score of 21 and has a greater score of 2 points. Contrary to normal volleyball rules, a player is able to hit the ball more than once in succession. This is due to the players not being able to leave their respective zones. The graphics are simple and similar to the early games of 2600, so don't expect to be wowed, but the use of four joysticks could make this a very fun group game. It is available on TardyMania.com and currently is rated a 5 out of 10 with 2 volts. Music Programmer, John Rush Elkins. Music Programmer is a music editing program for a 24K Atari, 32K with disc. It uses standard musical notation to generate music, which can be enjoyed on its own or entered into other basic programs. The author states that minimal musical and programming skills are required. This application uses all four voices of the Atari, which is ironic because the other applications I previously reviewed only used one. I guess that's one caveat of porting programs from less multimedia-capable systems. You can have four time signatures to choose from, 4-4, 3-4, 2-4, and 2-2, and a string a single note over up to 16 measures. There are a slew of other options that appear to make this a very musical-capable application. Since there are several professional applications that, more than likely, surpass the app's functionality, I doubt that anyone would choose to use it now, but back in the day, I think it would be quite useful. This application doesn't appear to currently exist on AtariMania.com, but I'll try to make some time to type it in and upload it. Look for it soon. Oh, and if you want to type it in yourself, know that page 74 follows page 72. The Tone Envelope This article by Chris U. Light discusses the complexities of real sound, known as the instrument's timbre, and how it's produced in a real instrument, such as piano. Then Chris talks about how synthesizers attempt to reproduce that sound by knowing what parts of the sound are important and what can be ignored. These important parts have been identified as the envelope and its pattern of overtones. If you want to introduce yourself to what actually is happening when an instrument produces sound, I think the short read would be worth your time. The Atari Music Composer Reviewed This is Atari's familiar music composer cartridge, listed at $59.95. Originally reviewed by Randall L. Kotzwitz, this cartridge is accompanied by a 20-page manual and assumes the user has some ability to read music. The interface consists of a main menu and four submenus, all navigated by entry of a single character and return. Music Composer can record 10 phrases of as many measures as memory will allow. Octaves are limited to 3 and 1 note. To put this in perspective, 
A piano has seven and a half octave range. Note duration can be up to 30 seconds. Music signatures other than the default C must be entered prior to the music. If entered after, the key will be displayed, but the music will play in the old key. This program also doesn't allow for triplets to be entered, which many songs contain. The menu offers alternatives, but both are incorrect and do not solve the problem. Editing is awkward. Each insertion or deletion of a note causes the measure to be played again. You have the ability to save and load from tape or disc. Randall's final impression is it left to him wanting more. The confined range, lack of variance in tempo, and triplets made it difficult for him to find music to be inputted without serious issues. He considers this a good introductory tool for those who wish to learn musical notation. Since the program was released in 1979, it's suggested that Atari revisit this program and give it a technical upgrade, such as give it an ability to merge files with BASIC. Current rating on AtariMania.com is 7.2 with 6 votes. Atari One-Liners by John Neum and ZVL Arafin from Hong Kong. This one-line of code prints out MSI Future Band in random colors while it plays a strange sound. To get the entire program within BASIC's three-line limit, you'll have to use the abbreviation keywords for graphics and position. Unfortunately, the magazine failed to print it out in this manner, so if you try to type it in as printed, it will fail. Hardware Corner. This one covers the advantages of multiple floppy drives and the suggestion of more RAM to improve performance when using those devices. They also cover DOSes and which ones take advantage of your new hardware, if you can afford it. In 1981, two floppy drives was a serious investment. It really makes you appreciate the size, price, and portability of today's removable media. Well, that just about covers this month's coverage of SoftSide Magazine. Hope you enjoyed it. Now back to Rob. Thanks, Michael. And that finishes up all the magazines for this episode. Now we'll head on to the game review of Reverse Eye 2. So Reverse Eye 2 is an APX game written by Russ Siegel. And Atari Mania has it as 1981, which is why I chose this game, because then we're still in 81. But the copyright done on the manual says 1982. But it's too late to change now, so we'll call it a 1981 game. It was released both on cassette and disc, and it's a game for one or two players using the joystick. It would be a fine, if a little bit odd, candidate for a MAME cabinet, in that it only uses the joystick, no keyboard. Not your typical MAME game, but you know, it would work. It is a version of the board game Othello, which has been remade any number of times, and as we saw earlier in all the magazine coverage, it's been <laughs> in a bunch of like reviews and in, in magazines in this, and in a prior episode, there was an Othello tournament. Uh, creative Computing had it. Yeah, that was back in episode 9. It was Creative Computing for June of 1981. So Othello is an interesting topic from the computer, like opponent point of view, because looking back at that magazine, the uh, algorithms could be designed such that the computer can play a six by six board perfectly. And above that, there it hasn't been proven, or it hadn't at the time anyway been proven that it could play anything higher in a perfect manner. So the reason I chose this game, apart from the other reverse eye games on the Atari, and Atari Mania shows no fewer than 24 other reverse eye slash Othello games. The reason I chose this one is this is one of the earliest ones, and it was also written in assembly language. And so I tend to have a bias towards assembly language games in this podcast, because I'm sort of, you know, interested in 6502 and eventually getting back into programming. And this one does have a computer opponent, and we'll look at that also. And that's an additional factor into why I chose this, because I, if you're, you're going to play two-player Othello, just please go g- grab a board game and do it that way. Unless you're playing in, like, different countries or something, but yeah. So the author again is Russ Siegel. He wrote two other games for the Atari. One was called Picnic Paranoia, which is an arcade-style game in 1982. And another one 
called uh, New York City, the Big Apple, which is looking at the pictures that, and some of the descriptions on Atari Mania call it like an open world sort of exploration game of New York City, which sounds interesting. So maybe I'll look at that at some point. I couldn't find much more info about him on the uh, on the web. I found a couple of hits that possibly could have been him on on like LinkedIn and stuff, but um, wasn't definitive and wasn't able to contact anybody. So uh, yeah, so no luck there. There was a manual then the in typical APX tradition is a sort of stapled paper copy, and it was a combination of typed and uh, dot matrix printed. And one of the antic interviews, I can't remember if it was Fred Thorlin or Dale Yoakum when they talked about APX. They said that most of the APX manuals were written by the authors and then sort of proofread and 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 stuff by the uh, by the APX staff. Atari Mania has the PDF of the whole manual, and so in looking at it, it is you know it's pretty sparse. It gives an overview of the game, and then it says it's either 16k RAM if you're using cassette, or you need 24k if you're using disc, and requires one joystick and optionally a second joystick. It tells you how to load it into the computer, and it gives a big list of stuff. You know, if you have the cassette version. Turn off your computer, insert the cassette, turn on the computer while holding on start. When you hear a beep, release the start key and press return key. Uh, you know, it's all this sort of basic stuff that I suppose must have been must have had to been in, in all these manuals, but I don't know if this was like boilerplate stuff or if he'd had to type it up himself. The game can either be played in color or black and white by pressing the select key. And then there's uh, six game options. And it doesn't describe it in any other way than just having a, a one through six on the screen. So... Choosing one through three is a single player version, one being the easiest and three being the most difficult computer opponent. Level four is the interesting one. It's the, it's the same as level three. It's the, the most difficult computer opponent, but it sort of shows you what the computer is thinking as it is calculating its move. So it changes the, the, the display screen to put a bunch of like numbers and stuff that, that signify its strategy. And then games five and six are two player versions. Games five is the two player with one joystick and and level six there is the two-player where you each have your own joystick. And then the manual goes into the game description. So if you've never played Othello, it's on an 8x8 board. It's a chessboard, essentially. And you have, each of you have these tiles that have one color on one side and one color on the other side. This is talking about the actual board game. In the computer, of course, they just, you know, change the color of the square as you as you choose a square. But in the real board game, if you mention the center point of the, of the grid, you know, so there's an 8x8 grid here. There are four squares immediately surrounding that center point. And on diagonally opposite sides, you'll put one color on the upper left and lower right, and the other color on the lower left and upper right. And that's the starting point of the game. And then the object is, is one player will put a tile down in such a way that you've got to be able to flip your opponent's color by making a line, horizontal, vertical, or diagonal, whose other endpoints are a tile of your color, and in between, they're only tiles of your opponent's color. And when you make that line any of the opponent's color tiles get flipped over to turn into your color on any one of the lines. So there could be multiple lines that get they get lined up and, and the opponent's tile gets flipped. And then it moves to the opponent's turn and, th- and then the opponent tries to put one of their tiles in the same way such that there's only your color tiles in between the endpoints of the lines that they make. And it proceeds one tile at a time until the entire board is filled or it says in rare cases that there's n- no player can have a legal move, which which I can't quite imagine how that would occur, but there's certainly plenty of cases where like one or the other won't have a legal move, but I I can't quite fathom how both would not have a legal move. So any uh, champion Othello players that might be listening, you can let me know how that might occur. So in this game, the default colors are red and green, and I'm here really reviewing the computer opponent 
version. So you, as the human plays red and the computer plays as green, use the joystick to select your little cursor. It's a little X that you can move around and hit the button to place one of your tiles. And the computer goes off and does its thing and, and plays a little atonal music and comes back with its move. So I'm a reasonably good Othello player. I've, my mom and I used to play it a lot when I was growing up, and I quickly learned the value of the edges and particularly the corners. And in level one here, the computer, all it thinks about is just whatever move it can do to get the most tiles is apparently its next move from what I, from just observing it. And so level one is, is very easy to beat. So I tried level three and it's pretty, it's, it's difficult. It, it gave me a good challenge. It, in fact, it got me down to, at one point I had a single tile and it had about 30 and I was able to come back and coax it into getting a, a bad move on one of the rows adjacent to one of the edges. And so I got onto the edge and was able to start taking back pieces. It's an interesting game in that you can be losing, losing, losing in terms of tile count for most of the game. But if you are able to get one strategic piece, you can just take back the entire board. So yeah, like I was down, yeah, like one to probably 30 pieces and came back and won the game like 42 to 22. But it's a pretty good computer opponent and it's only, the game is, is 4K. I'm certainly by no means an expert Othello player, but I'm certainly much better Othello player than I am like a chess player or something. But yeah, this computer opponent gave me enough of a challenge that I would continue playing it. In that June issue of Creative Computing, they talked about the strategy and how you might give certain weightings to different pieces on, places on the board in order to determine what your next move would be, you know, thinking about how to program a computer player. And kind of foolishly, I took a look at the assembly language. I disassembled it and (laughs) yeah, there's no way I can figure out the logic of it, but I did take a look at the display list and so in, in, when you look at the screen, I kind of thought, Oh, I bet I know how they do, did this. Cause they're each little square is, I mean, it's, it's pretty minimalistic display in that there's no adornments. There's, it's just a black screen, some a couple lines of text for the, the score and the, on the top. And then the, the status, who's going to move and stuff on the bottom. And in the middle, there's the eight by eight grid. And the grid is set up such that there's a, a square that's blue. If there's no, tile on it and then it's either red or green for you or the computer opponent once you put down a tile but there's like bands of black between each square so it's not just a you know just a solid mass of color and so i thought oh i bet i know i bet they put some blank lines in the display list between the in between the rows and then i look in the display list and nope it's just it's just graphics uh antic mode 7 which is what basic graphics mode 2 but it's interesting in the way they set it up and this is one of the advantages of the atari in that they put the lines of text, they put the memory address, they use a load memory scan to force the antic to look at a particular memory address for the text lines. And then there's a different block of memory location for the grid. So what that this means is that when you want to print the text on the screen, you don't have to like look up, okay, I need to print this text at column two and row 10. You just say, okay, I'm going to stuff this row of text in this memory location and it shows up on the screen wherever the display list says it should. Say so you don't need any of the, the lookup tables for rows and columns and stuff. You can modify your display list to put stuff where you need to. And then as it turns out, the uh, tiles themselves have the, the spacing built into the character set. So if, if looking at the disassembly and the raw uh, bytes in a, in a hex dump, hex editor, you can see that the tiles themselves have like a one pixel border on the left and the bottom. And so that's what makes the gaps between each of the rows and the columns. So there's not a lot more to say about this game. It's a, it's a good game. It's a challenging computer opponent on the third level. I do like the little mode 
uh, level four, where it shows you the, how the computer thinks. And what it does is it, for all the legal moves that it can do, it calculates how many pieces it, it will take and then decides whether or not it's a good move by presumably using some sort of weighting on where it lands on, you know, the, with the value of a particular square, you know, because the squares are around the edges and the corners particularly are the most valuable. So presumably there's some sort of weighting in there. And then it, if it's a good move, it has a, a character or a number in like, I don't know, <laughs> base 20 or something where uh, it'll put a number of the number of pieces it expects to take, you know, one through nine, and then 10 is A, 11 is B, up to looking at the character set, it goes up through J. If it expects to lose pieces, it flips the character over. So it's an, it's a, like a, you know, one, two, whatever, standing on its head. It's op- opposite the <laughs> normal orientation. So that's kind of fun to watch it think. Yeah, it'd be interesting to have a computer Othello tournament somehow. I know um, way long ago on Retro Competing Roundtable, Earl Evans and Carrington Vanston did a chess tournament pitting the uh, Commodore 64 versus the Apple II. So it'd be fun to do that sometime with Othello and uh, maybe even like a, that'd be cool to get a contest or something. People rank their own com- computer opponents. Hmm, maybe that's an idea for Kansas Fest next year. Anyways, it's an enjoyable little program. I definitely return to this to play Othello. But if I'm going to play against somebody else in real life, I'll definitely use a board. As we close out, here's some pokey music from Piotr Sfirch called Reverse One. And my pronunciation is still a work in progress. I'm, uh, I had to pull out the pronunciation guide and gave it a shot, but can't roll my R's, among many other problems. So yeah, a great time at Kansas Fest. Looking forward to next year's Kansas Fest. Hopefully I can get to next year's California Extreme as well. I had fun with Retro Challenge, even though I didn't complete it, but it was fun to make a little more progress in Star Raiders, and so maybe that's not a project that will totally fall by the wayside, so that'll be good. Definitely looking forward to the XE Game System podcast, so stay tuned for that. Check out Shinto's Jaguar Game by Game podcast. I'll be back with episode 16. Probably is going to be the second half of the Flight Simulator episode. Chris and I have got some time scheduled, so hopefully we can get that going. And then we'll be into 1982 after that episode. 1982, yeah, more. Definitely have a a much bigger selection of games. If you have any games you want me to cover or you're interested in, let me know if you you have any of your own Atari-related software you'd like me to feature. I'm certainly happy to do that. You can contact me at feedback at playermissile.com or I'm on Twitter at Atari8BitGames. If you happen to feel like leaving a review over at iTunes, that'd be great. And I will see you next episode.